Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to this episode of LawPod. This is a special episode for International Women's Day which we're celebrating here at the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast. I'm Alice Panapinto, I'm a lecturer in law at Queen's, and I am delighted to invite our uh, special guest for today, Angela Godfrey Goldstein of Jahaleen Solidarity in Jerusalem. Angela, thank you for making so much time to chat with us today and tell us a little bit more about your fantastic work over the decades in human rights in different areas and different fields and different parts of uh, the world. So, Before getting started, I just wanted to remind everyone that today is another opportunity to hear from someone, a woman, who is making and has made a really important positive change in the world through her work in human rights and social justice. Angela, if I can ask you to tell us a little bit more about what brought you to this line of work in human rights, and perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your journey from acting to activism. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a huge honor and really rather humbling. I would say that all of us, we have our journeys and it's fascinating, isn't it, to look back and see where was I, when and how and who and and what brought this machine to this particular moment. I can think, for example, when I was an eight-year-old at boarding school from the age of six, Uh, with my parents in Africa, and this was obviously in England. A a little girl, she was, actually she was Jewish from India, um, Annette Manasseh, running a needle up and down the legs of all the little girls in the dormitory late at night. And when she'd finished doing this version of torture to me, she then said, now go and tell Miss Bowen, who was the headmistress, and quite a battle axe. And I did. I rushed down the stairs late at night to this cheroot-filled study, knocked on the door and said, Annette Manasseh has been torturing us. And she said to come and tell you, so here I am. And if I look back, I think, voila, that was a little eight-year-old who was calling out bullies. And then again, in my early teens, I can remember the mother of a girl at school, Lady Egamont going to work in North Vietnam, in Hanoi, during the Vietnam War, to nurse injured Viet Cong. And I collected, I remember, 100 pounds from people in school and parents and so forth. And with this, she was able to buy antibiotics in pill form because these children were too badly burned easily to be able to Um, withstand injections. So the journey obviously had a certain type of thinking behind it. My father, as I said, was a doctor. And when you're a doctor's daughter, there's a problem, you put it right. That's just something that you learn growing up with somebody around who does that. Somebody who um, teaches you not to laugh when somebody falls on a banana skin because they're in pain. 
So if I go forward, I would say, yes, there was somebody that was sort of engaged politically. I was in the Liberal Party in London as constituency secretary, delegate to party conference. And I canvassed Grenfell Towers, I can remember, when it was still a new building. Uh, and therefore, there was a certain political awareness, but I certainly wasn't somebody who did anything about it all. Not apart from, you know, a little bit of political flirtation, I would say. I can remember in my trade union, they took me up to Manchester or somewhere uh, in order to speak about actor union uh, politics. And I was a real disappointment because I hardly said anything. I really didn't have much to say in those days. I came to Israel 1981, having been, as you say, in the theater in the West End, doing a lot of radio, television, film. And for about 10 years, I did what is called worked on myself <laughs> uh, with a teacher. And that's why I came here. And that was very much consciousness raising. That was about freeing oneself up, working on one's problems. So who pulls your strings? Is it you? Is it your history? Is it peer pressure, etc.? And it was very much, and still is, uh, I would say, a spiritual journey in which one began to value principles such as truth and life and freedom, all of which are by now, I think, fundamental in my being and definitely principles that have in the past had enough importance for me that I know that when I was living in Sinai in Egypt for four years, I understood clearly that human rights work here is dangerous. Maybe they won't like it, but I was prepared to pay whatever the price was. And, and obviously one knew very well that that could be a high price. Um, in the early days of working on myself, one was aware of the occupation. One was aware of the lack of peace here in Israel. Uh, but my thinking was there are people who go out and demonstrate. There are people who are involved in all of that. It wasn't really my thing. And I certainly didn't know much about it. I wasn't going out and, you know, seeing for myself or visiting or uh, witnessing. I certainly wasn't involved. And that only came later when having been an environmental activist in Sinai, because I fell in love with desert, along with somebody, um, very amazing man who for 20 years was in my life, died five years ago. But that made me somebody who was committed to desert, committed to Bedouin culture at its best, because it's very much about an open heart, truth, simplicity, non-consumerism, caring about nature, uh, sustainability, all of those, you know, principles that, that, that really stand out as in a, a need of defense when they're threatened, but on the other hand, also um, as a goal for how we should be living our lives better. Because indigenous peoples, I believe, all over the world are very connected with nature, with life, with land, with traditions. And 
it is sustainable, they are not harming the environment in any way, and yet we tend to think of them as being somehow primitive or inferior, and we are the developed world, and they're the developing, uh, and, and there's all those tensions, colonialism being very much part of it in our thinking here. So to get back to the question, what brought me to this was becoming an activist, once you cross that line, and for me it was collecting garbage, plastic bags, telling tourists not to overuse the water, you know, telling children to switch off the taps, and and certainly organizing divers to save Ras Mohammed Marine Park, uh, then becoming involved in land rights for Bedouin. Once you become an activist, then the success of that of itself actually is quite a spur, because I learned, and I believe everybody can learn this lesson, that an individual can make a huge difference. It's not something that you have to have huge amounts of money. It's not something where you need to have organizations behind you. Each person, I believe, can in their own small way, and sometimes that can become huge, make a difference. And once one has that empowerment, then it's much, much more likely that you will want to use it. I came back to Israel from Sinai for medical reasons. And once I was fit again, I then had a very different approach because of that past experience to what was going on around me. I was very much involved with Bedouin and their culture. So I actually then started to learn for the first time in Israel, what is the situation for Bedouin citizens who do not have democratic rights? And I was taking journalists and diplomats down to the Negev to show them this, you know, famous model, the only democracy in the Middle East, where you have full citizens who are not allowed to be farmers. Uh, and you have a situation which one professor of anthropology, Dawn Chatty, refers to as cultural genocide. Um, and, and to come back again to your question, therefore, what brought me here was, on the one hand, some of that past experience, some of it probably being my personality or background, but also once you start learning and seeing, it becomes almost impossible to walk away. So you find yourself in situations where somebody's got to do something about this, and then you look around and you see there's nobody else. And yalla, here I am going up to Cairo with photographs of the Egyptian army demolishing Bedouin camps to Reuters and to all the others. And it ended up with people having their land licensed. And we were successful because at the time, the American uh, Bush administration, I guess, 1998, was putting pressure on the Egyptian government to respect human rights more. And therefore, I understood from that that human rights can actually be an enormous game changer. From a spiritual perspective, once you value life and, and you know, you see every, everything around you as sacred and everybody should be dealt with on, on a similar basis, um, then, then I think that's what has brought me to where I am today. Thank you, Angela. That's uh, really fascinating to hear how uh, rich your personal and professional background is 
and how together it really has brought about uh, an extraordinary lifetime of uh, achievements in human rights. I understand that recently you have been also the recipient of quite an important recognition in the Indigenous Peoples Movement. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, that's an interesting development. Um, I was approached by the World Indigenous Forum uh, and asked to invite a Bedouin to that forum, which I did. Um, I became involved in it uh, to the extent that I was then uh, elected to the Council of 90. And then when they had the actual forum itself, a, a virtual forum, I was on the Wall of Fame. Um, as a non-Indigenous person, I, I think that that was, um, yeah, an, a, a, one of my life's achievements, let's say. Yeah. I think it's a, a moment and a process to be uh, incredibly proud of, um, especially as a non-Indigenous person. And this, I suppose, um, really helps us reflect on how important solidarity is in human rights work. It's not just about who uh, you are and what your personal experience is. If you embrace the spirit of human rights and social justice, you can really appreciate uh, that regardless of your identities, your background, etc., you can still really make an, an important difference to uh, the movement of human rights in areas that perhaps you didn't think you could be part of. And I think, you know, just listening there, Angela, to the story of your life, right? An international upbringing, mixed parentage, exposure to different aspects of human rights and social justice in different countries, environmental justice and land rights, hugely uh, important in painting that fuller picture of human rights, which is not just about civil and political rights, nominally, right, there's a democracy, but that's of course not enough. A more holistic understanding of uh, human rights and human rights advocacy and human rights work, uh, as you've just uh, illustrated, really can help give depth and meaning to the human rights project. So it's also economic rights and social rights and those cultural rights, which you mentioned earlier in relation to the distinctive cultural aspects of uh, Bedouin life in uh, different parts of the Middle East. And, you know, building, building on these uh, reflections, I was wondering there, Angela, if the fact that you are a woman was instrumental or, or, or perhaps a barrier to some of your works in uh, work in human rights and uh, social justice we've uh, we've had this conversation before informally but it would be uh, great to hear more about how your your experience as a woman enabled you to navigate uh, the space of uh, human rights or, or or perhaps you know posed um, specific challenges yeah i i find this a very interesting um process of thinking backwards because at the time I don't think I was aware of uh, my feminine identity as being as major as it probably was. So that if, for example, I was in Sinai working um, with Bedouin or with Egyptians, males, it's a very patriarchal society, uh, both the Egyptian mainstream and Bedouin. Uh, I have never really identified 
I would say, for the last 30, 40 years as a woman. And I was actually at a presentation once at one of the universities in Europe, and they wanted, it was a feminist conference, and they wanted me to identify as a woman for the sake of their donors. And I found that very difficult. So I actually said, look, I don't identify as a woman. I'm a human being. And obviously there are overlap areas, just as in the theater, there was the casting couch. And I don't suppose that happened all the time to guys. Um, but as far as my feminine or uh, female identity, look, I think that we women, we have had to be more sophisticated and nuanced in many ways. And therefore, we navigate um, maybe intuitively or instinctively. Um, I don't think I've ever used my femininity in order to get ahead deliberately. I have sometimes been at a disadvantage as a woman, but only, you know, post-factum did I discover, for example, the five repression techniques were being used on me in one job. And after I read this, it all fell into place and you said to yourself, yes, they were withholding information. Yes, they were belittling me. We know you're busy. We don't need to know what you're doing, that sort of thing. Um, so I would say that being female, it's had, it's had some impact for sure. On the other hand, I, it's not an identity that I naturally adopt or identify with. Um, I think that in some ways I'm more childlike than female. In other ways, I think I'm more old soul than female. Um, but I do believe that that having had all of those years of, you know, watching women's lib developing around me, the feminism and so forth, you know, one has one has come to a point by now of of demanding equality really. I think it's it's intrinsic even in the way we interact with people. Um, I noticed the other day a, a male neighbor, he left in the middle of a meeting with me and later he wanted to come back. And I think that as a woman in the past, I would have said, yes, yes, I mean, please do. And on this occasion, no, I'm actually, I'm sorry, I can't have you back at the moment. I'm in the middle of the news cycle. And I thought to myself, you know, that's that's progress. That's that's not letting the man dictate the agenda and the timing and taking it for granted. So I just think that, you know, there are certain things where I'm very grateful that I had the background that I had, but I I'm at an age now where, you know, I see myself in this video or something and I think, oh, who's the old bag? But it's really not important to me anymore how I look and what they think and all of those things that, that one spends so much energy and so much caring and neediness about. Because the more you become your own person, the more success you have, the more confidence you have, the less you need anybody's um, accolades or um, what's the word, Alice? I don't need anybody to tell me who I am. No. Affirmation. Thank you. <laughs> Affirmation. I, I 
I, it's, you know, all of those games, come on, there's something much more important going on, and that's life. And we live at the moment in a, in a very, very meaningful period where whether you're talking about climate or COVID or capitalism or colonialism or ending the Israeli occupation or admitting there is one, um, all of these things are really uh, sufficiently urgent and should be the priorities that all the other stuff, come on, who has time for all of that? Jealousies and 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 jostling and ego it's just in the way and, and I think it's so immature I was just going to echo that you know and I, I definitely think that um, the field of human rights activism advocacy and, and and practice is not immune from egos and personalities and all of that and I think you know in any given human rights setting it's possible to identify the extent to which the um, the individualism sometimes hinders the process that would benefit everyone, uh, including the individual who's focusing on you know their own as opposed to the collective. And that leads me, I suppose, to my next question there, Angela, which um, brings us back to your work in Israel and Palestine. You've told us a little bit uh, about how you uh, arrived, but could you perhaps expand a little bit on the potential of human rights to achieve social justice for all, from the river to the sea? Okay, so again, it comes back to this thing of valuing life and of seeing the other person as yourself. I find today's Israel tragic because it's so far away from Judaism. It's so far away from the root values that in the past always made Jewish people stand up for the underdogs, that it, that it was always seen as part of their Jewishness to care, to care for the other, to care for life, to care for principles, values, truth, all of that. Um, and I would say that, that for me, Palestinians are people who have had so much pain. Yes, let's not go into comparisons of the Jewish pain and the, you know, Holocaust. My mother nursed survivors from Bergen-Belsen, so I knew about that at the age of two. But Palestinians are almost universally, in certain uh, uh, communities, um, stereotyped as terrorists, as liars, as people who were not here before, who have no rights. And, you know, if we don't have human rights as the equalizer, what do we have? What do we what are we fighting under or, or for? Is it peace? Uh, the minute you say every single human being, you, me, he, she, they all have rights to clean air. Can anybody disagree? Clean water, freedom of movement, a roof over their head, adequate housing. And the question then is, if you deny those human rights, what is it making you? And I would say that Israel today, 
by denying human rights as the universal um, placeholder or whatever you want to call it, is creating horrible Israelis. We are becoming increasingly people who take, who don't know how to give, people who do not value life, who are living by a creed of arrogance, greed, jealousy, covetousness. We are breaking the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. All of that is gone by the board. And, you know, if you look and you see the, the level of fascism coming into the Knesset with people like Itamar Ben-Gvir, a Kahanist, uh, who believes in transfer and who is extremely racist, Betzalel Smotrich, homophobe, uh, then, you know, the value system of those people is creating a culture, a society that, that is unsustainable because who wants to live like that? Which normal people want to be around people who normally lie, who are normally corrupt, who think nothing of, you know, multi-million dollar deals in their private banks or in their daughter's bank. She's 19 and suddenly she's got 5 million or whatever it is. It's, 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 not, it's not a future world that you or I would want to be either living in or planning for our children or grandchildren and so forth. When things, principles like truth, love, open heart, transparency, they work. They work. It builds trust. It builds human beings you can love. It makes life worth living. So if you look at the Trumpian dystopy, I don't know the word. Anyway, if you look at what he was creating and you look at today's Israel with Netanyahu, I mean, it's horrible. It's grim. It's maybe 1% are doing fine and all the rest know damn well that they are being screwed. And I don't use the F word because you'll have to edit it out. But they know they're being. And, and you know, I, I think that in terms of, as you said earlier, I was an environmental activist. So in terms of climate, in terms of caring about the ability of the planet to sustain us, all of this is, is stuff that you can't have strong-armed men coming in and threatening to, you know, blow up an atomic bomb and put everybody out. There, there have to be responsible, mature adults in charge or running it or involved um, so, that, so, that, so that there's a future, so that we appreciate the present, so that the past has meaning. You know, if we're in the sixth great meltdown or whatever it's called of the planet, yes? I mean, Shakespeare, Beethoven, Bach, you name it. And I'm sure the planet can do very well without us, but the next time around in a few million years, um, maybe there won't be a Shakespeare or a Bach or a Beethoven, etc. 
okay, we're going very off off topic here, but it's relevant because it gives us it it gives us a sense, Angela, of um, how inter interconnected these issues are. When we talk about human rights, um, we cannot talk about uh, human rights without considering environmental justice, right? Just as we can't talk about civil and political rights without talking about economic, oh, social yeah. and cultural rights. So it is uh, interconnected and it's important to make uh, the links. Yeah, the ICC certainly, I hope, will, will classify ecocide as a crime against humanity, a crime against life. Mm, mm, absolutely. Um, and I know that I know that time is of essence, and I would have so many follow-up questions on what you've already shared with us, Angela. And you know, but I do I do want to make sure that our listeners, and especially our students, hear what advice you might have for women or anyone thinking of uh, embarking on a career in human rights and social justice. Before handing back to you, there I should I should add that personally and professionally, I have benefited greatly from years of uh, your your mentoring. And I think my advice to anyone hoping to go into human rights is to find someone who will believe in you and give you give you some insight into the complexities of whichever aspect of uh, human rights or uh, whatever country or locality or people uh, you're, you're, you're hoping to make a difference for. So that would be like my advice to anyone who's thinking about working in uh, human rights, uh, you know, find a find a mentor. Yeah. Angela has mentored me, and uh, uh, it's been uh, uh, incredibly helpful. And uh, you know, and by now we're friends. <laughs> two way, a two way process, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. So, what would you what would you say to young law students who are thinking about working in? human rights and perhaps specifically in complex and 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 seemingly un, untractable areas of human rights such as the field you work in what would you tell them okay so i would say first of all read as much as you can learn about the situation as widely as you can and then go there and i think that it's very much the human relationships that form part of the structure of that work, the underpinning. Because, again, once you have seen what you see and once you know those people, I think that that comes with responsibility to do something about it. I think that, you know, I used to go and watch homes being demolished when I was for nine years with the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. And it got to the point where I felt very bad about my own lack of ability to do anything, to make a difference. We couldn't, we, we rebuilt some homes, but more often than not, you can't rebuild the house for somebody. You can't give them an alternative. You can't bring justice for them. You can't end the occupation and its policies which are making it impossible for them to legally build a home as a means of getting them out. Uh, uh, so it's a land grab and it's a forcible displacement, war crime, etc. So I would say meet people, stay long enough to know what you're talking about. It's not something that's a 10-day journey or a visit in a delegation. It needs to be over the long term. Um, 
I think that networking is really important so that you are aligned with other people working in the same direction, but never underestimate your own ability alone to make a difference if you have initiative. And I think that also my advice to people is try to imagine if nobody is doing anything and ask yourselves, what are your reasons for not wanting to? Is it um, financial? Because I, in my experience, you have to be prepared to live with nothing and just keep going. You know, I was walking around barefoot in Sinai and, and somebody said to me, why don't you have any shoes on? And I said, I can't afford them. And so she gave me a pair of sandals. Um, it, it, it's not something that money should be the deciding factor. Uh, on the other hand, nor should masochism you know, if it's really impossible, maybe you're not in the right place or the right person or the right time. But I think that knowing you're doing something that has direct impact on people's lives and can help them is of itself a huge blessing. You know, if I look back on life in London in the 70s, everybody in the rush hour, just, it felt very dead. It felt very meaningless. I'm sure it wasn't, but that was how I felt it. Just, you know, on the tube at night, you're tired, it's filthy, it's crowded. And you ask yourself, what am I doing? And you don't have a good answer. All you were doing was paying the rent. So I think that this is certainly human rights. It's it's something that you will get an enormous boost from. I think that you will be able to look yourself in the mirror and see somebody who didn't run away or hide. I think that it's something that will build you and you will start at A and end up at Z, a very different person. And again, you will probably appreciate those changes and that growth and that learning period. Um, I, I, I came to Israel in 1981 intending to be a painter and my teacher was very wise. He taught me to teach myself and I'm a good painter and I don't have time for it. So certainly there have to be um, sacrifices uh, and I'm hoping at a certain point I will be able to leave this work and go back to uh, living quietly, painting, writing poetry, you know, getting old gracefully, um, I don't know, but I, I just, if there's something that somebody can see that is wrong and they know deep down they can put it right, why not do it? With all of the problems in the world today, I really think we have to fight for what is the future. I mean, you know, COVID is partly a response. You said earlier, everything is holistic and connected. It's very much part of losing the filters, losing wilderness, jungle, grasslands, whatever. Um, then there's also, to be honest with you, there's this whole area that we haven't really touched on that is more spiritual. And, and the question then is, you know, do you have total agency yourself 
or are there forces that are somehow forces of good and you're part of that equation? I don't know. I don't think anybody can know. But I've been very blessed to have been involved and around people who did care enormously and were prepared to make huge personal sacrifices and were really remarkable human beings. So it comes back again to this thing of the blessings of life and valuing this brief moment that you and I are breathing. Um, it's all a miracle. And if we're not careful under our watch, it will stop being a miracle. So why are we not all hands on deck for the future of your children, your grandchildren, your students' grandchildren? Sorry to be sort of quasi-guru on you there, but I, I, I personally believe human rights is fundamental to to the welfare of the planet and we as human beings. And if you have better ideas, I'm prepared to consider them. But until such time, let's keep, let's keep fighting this fight. Thank you, Angela. I couldn't agree more. I would, I would just like to say that I'm really glad you, you said it there a moment ago. When you see something unjust, when you see harm, when you see destruction of people, environment, anything that can be avoided or prevented or stopped, it's impossible really to turn your head and look away. So I think that's, that's something that I, that I, that, that speaks to me and, uh, you know, and I'm sure it'll, it'll speak to many of our uh, students and anyone else listening today. I think we've run yeah. out of time. And even, can I just say one of other course. thing? I think we've run out of time. So let me just say this other thing, thought, um, that if we're talking about human rights and humanity, then democracy is also very much part of that. And I think that in the last four years of having Trump in the White House was a very good lesson to all of us to appreciate democracy and to understand what the alternatives are what is dictatorship, what is a megalomaniac, what is a narcissist likely to do, um, whether it's nuclear or just in general daily levels of nastiness that democracy needs defending. It is also important uh, as a way of organizing human life. And... Um, and making our lives worth living. Absolutely. And on that important note, let me thank you again very much for making um, time to talk, to talk to us today. And I would invite everyone to join me in thanking Angela Godfrey Goldstein for her important words in our podcast. Thank you. And thank you, Alice. Bless you. You have been listening to LawPod an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by the Queen's University Law School. Please follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod. 
For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org, and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.